Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that is brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number two, the book of Revelation, chapter one. The English word revelation is an attempt to translate the Greek word apocalypsis. And the same word is also often transliterated into English as apocalypse. And the word carries two senses with it. First, it speaks of a catastrophic or a destructive ending. A second and different meaning is it speaks of the unveiling of a mystery. And as it applies to John's recorded visions, both meanings come into play. Since the English term revelation means to unveil or reveal and not to destroy or end, then the typical English Christian title that's been assigned to the book of Revelation only reflects half the story. Now, as we discussed in our introduction to Revelation last week, a firm connection between the New Testament book of Revelation and several Old Testament books is needed for proper interpretation. One of the many proofs of this is that the New Testament regularly has statements that Yeshua of Nazareth is the fulfillment of a number of Old Testament prophecies. So I want to begin today's lesson by drawing you towards a remarkable section of the book of 1 Corinthians whereby Paul makes that indelible connection between the Old Testament and the, the, the post-Christ times that the New Testament authors lived in. But also he mentions about when it was that he thought that the current age was going to come to a close. So turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1431. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, page 1431 in a complete Jewish Bible. I'm going to start at verse 1. For brothers, I don't want you to miss the significance of what happened to our fathers. All of them were guided by the pillar of cloud. They all passed through the sea. And in connection with the cloud and with the sea, they were all immersed, they all immersed themselves into Moses, and they also all ate the same food from the Spirit. And they all drank the same drink from the Spirit, for they drank from a Spirit-sent rock which followed them, and that rock was the Messiah. Yet with the majority of them, God was not pleased. So their bodies were strewn across the desert. Now, these things took place as prefigurative historical events, warning us not to set our hearts on evil things as they did. Don't be idolaters, as some of them were. As the Tanakh puts it, the people sat down to eat and drink and they got up to indulge in revelry and let us not engage in sexual immorality as some of them did, with the consequence that 23,000 died in a single day. And let us not put the Messiah to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by snakes. And don't grumble as some of them did. And they were destroyed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as prefigurative historical events and they were written down as a warning to us who are living in the Acherit Hayamim. Therefore let anyone who thinks he is standing up be careful not to fall. Acherit Hayamim is translated into English in most Bibles as the end of the age. An alternative term that we use is the end times. Paul says those things written about what happened to our fathers, things recorded in the Hebrew Tanakh, the Old Testament, were recorded as a warning to who? To us who are living in the end of the age. Paul thought the time was upon him. He was not waiting for the end times to eventually come. He was certain he was living in the end times. Yeshua would return momentarily. The world as Paul knew it would end. And a new age would be ushered in with Christ as an earthly king. 
during Paul's lifetime. And as we read the words of Revelation today, and over the next many months, we're going to see that John's perspective of the imminence of the end times was the same as Paul's. As apparently it was for all the early believers, especially the Jewish believers, because they were all too familiar with what their prophets had to say on the subject. I'm going to repeat. Paul directly connected the Old Testament with the end times teaching that the end times is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. Therefore, the book of Revelation, which is mostly about the end times, is also about the fulfillment of the purposes and the prophecies of the Old Testament. If it were not so, then we would have the apostles Paul and John at an intolerable theological loggerhead. With, and, and we'd be left with trying to figure out who was right and who was wrong. Now another point I mentioned in our introduction that bears repeating is that there are many viewpoints of how to interpret Revelation. It's a book that is utter gibberish to many. Merely confusing to some. And others have a firm and inflexible view of what the book reports that dismisses all other interpretations as heresy. I believe the main cause for this bewilderment and this wide array of interpretations is the Bible academic blind eye turned towards the very source that Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10, the Old Testament. I mean, at best, Revelation is difficult. Without the help and context of the Old Testament and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our midst, understanding is hopeless. Apringius of Beha, who lived in the mid-6th century, said this, Revelation makes known what we cannot know. From this we learn that his book is called an apocalypse, that is, Revelation, which manifests those secrets which are hidden, unknown to the senses, and that unless Christ himself reveals them, he who would perceive the revelation will not have the strength to understand what he sees. Wise words. So as we get ready to open this final book of the Bible, the final recorded historical words that will ever be given to the worldwide body of believers by means of divine oracle and inspiration, let us not be terribly rigid in how we take them. Much of the book is about a future filled with mystery. And as those many Jews just prior to the birth of Christ could attest if they were still living today, religious doctrines, man-made traditions, and our own personal interpretations of as yet unrealized prophesied events in the Bible must be held lightly. Or we're just liable to miss out recognizing the actual events for what they are when they finally do happen. So, open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it is page... 1533. Revelation chapter 1. This is the revelation which God gave to Yeshua the Messiah so that he could show his servants what must happen very soon. He communicated it by sending his angel to his servant Yohanan, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Yeshua the Messiah as much as he saw. Now blessed are the reader and the hearers of the words of this prophecy provided they obey the things written in it. 
for the time is near from Yochanan, the John, to the seven messianic communities in the province of Asia. Grace and shalom to you from the one who is, who was, and who is coming, from the sevenfold spirit before his throne, and from Yeshua the Messiah, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the earth's kings. To him, the one who loves us, who has freed us from our sins at the cost of his blood, who has caused us to be a kingdom, that is, Kohanim, priests, for God, his Father. To him be the glory and the rulership forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, including those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the land will mourn him. Yes, Amen. I am the A and the Z, says Adonai, God of heaven's armies. The one who is, who was, and who is coming. I, John, am a brother of yours and a fellow sharer in the suffering, kingship, and perseverance that come from being united with Yeshua. I had been exiled to the island called Patmos for having proclaimed the message of God and borne witness to Yeshua. I came to be in the Spirit on the day of the Lord, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write down what you see on a scroll and send it to the seven messianic communities, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And I turned around to see who was among who was speaking to me, and when I had turned, I saw seven gold menorahs. And among the menorahs was someone like a son of man, wearing a robe down to his feet and a gold band around his chest. His head and hair were white as snow, white wool, his eyes like a fiery flame, his feet like the burnished uh, burnished brass refined in a furnace and his voice like the sound of rushing waters and in his right hand he held seven stars and out of his mouth went a sharp double-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in its full strength and when I saw him I fell down at his feet like a dead man he placed his right hand upon me and said don't be afraid I am the first and the last the living one I was dead, but look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys to death and Sheol. So write down what you see, both what is now and what will happen afterwards. Here is the secret meaning of the seven stars you saw in my right hand, and of the seven gold menorahs. The seven stars are the angels of the seven messianic communities, and the seven menorahs are the seven messianic communities. Now the first few words of verse 1 are crucial as well as not just a little bit controversial. The crucial part is that the words of Revelation are characterized as more than divinely inspired. They are divinely given. I want to explain what I mean. Since Christians tend to be primarily focused on the New Testament, then the level to which divine authority can be attached to those 27 books is important to determine. Thus, Christian theologians will say, generally speaking, the New Testament is of a class of authority called divinely inspired. What does that mean? Well, using the accepted theological definition, it means that while the words of the New Testament were thoughts of and written down by humans, the human authors were led by the Holy Spirit or otherwise divinely influenced in some unknowable way to think them and to record them. The exception usually mentioned is, of course, the words directly spoken by Messiah Yeshua. Those are direct divine words. Those are instructions made without, uh, without human mediation. Therefore, Christ's words rise to a higher level of divine authority than those which are merely divinely inspired. However, the words of Revelation are essentially in the same category as the direct words of Yeshua 
because we're told unequivocally this is the revelation that God gave to Yeshua the Messiah and then was passed along to John. Such a circumstance is what also the new sets the New Testament prophets apart from most of the other writings of the Old and New Testament. That is, the writers are given direct divine oracles. They're not passing along their own thoughts, inspired or otherwise. John belongs in the same category as the Old Testament prophets in that regard. That is, John is used as a human messenger of God's directives. This also tells us that to call this book the Apocalypse of John is a misnomer. It waters down this book's divine authority. Revelation stands unique in the New Testament as not being merely inspired of God but actually directly from God. Partly given by oracle, partly given by vision. But here's where it can get controversial. Depending on the particular doctrine of the Trinity that one might hold. There is a very clear delineation that John makes between God and Yeshua the Messiah. We are told about as plainly as it can get that God gave this vision to Yeshua. We just read it. How are we to take this? If we go by the most prevalent Trinitarian view that the unity of God, Son, and Holy Spirit is so complete with each person having co-equal authority over the other, then why the distinct mention of God and Yeshua so separately from one another that Yeshua is not the author of this revelation vision at all? But God is. That's what it says. Or in Christian Trinitarian thought, could this mean that God created the visions and then passed them along to himself? I mean, what we read is that God is the author who gives the vision to Yeshua, who is but second in a long chain of five steps. And the fifth step being the believer, us, who hear and or reads the book of Revelation. The oracles and visions begin with God the Father, are passed along to Yeshua the Son, then to angels, angels to John, and then John finally to us in written form. In both testaments, when the term God, Yah, is used, it usually is meant in one of two ways. First, it refers to God the Father, whose name as given to Moses was Yehoveh, but was known in earlier times as El or El Shaddai. Second, it is at times used to refer to the Godhead, that consists of all that God is. Now typically in Christian thought, but not Jewish, this is seen as an amalgam of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And over and over again in the Gospels, we find Yeshua as subservient to God the Father. He prays to God the Father, asks God the Father that the Father's will be done, showing us the Lord's Prayer. Not to pray to Yeshua, but rather to who? Our Father. Even depicting God the Father on the central throne in heaven with Yeshua on the throne that sits to the right hand of his Father. See, this throne vision is, is a common understood imagery in the ancient world. I'll tell you what it means. To them it means God the Father is the senior king, 
God the Son is the junior king. Therefore, while at its fundamental core, I think it is scripturally correct to speak of a trio of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as divine, together forming the basis of the Godhead. We must hold lightly how all that works. Ancient Hebrew sages, Christian authorities, rabbis, they have debated for centuries about the nature and substance of God. I think in the end, it's a fool's errand. Because even if His nature in all of its glory and fullness was shown to us, humans aren't equipped to perceive or process what we might see. Verse 2. John speaks of himself as one who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Yeshua the Messiah. That is, as one of the original twelve disciples, John heard the gospel directly from the lips of Christ. The word of God and Yeshua the Messiah are parallel terms in this instance, as John in other places, in his various books, calls Yeshua the Word. Well, then we get this amazing promise that came to John from God that is to be passed along to the readers and hearers of Revelation. We will be blessed. Now, we either take this as something that's serious or it's just a happy sounding expression with not much substance that could be removed from the book without any harm. It is true that the exact nature of this blessing is open to debate. But to my mind, any blessing from God is a great blessing. What is not open to debate is that the promise of this blessing comes with a caveat. The blessing only comes if we are obedient to what has been written in Revelation. That is, this blessing is conditional. It is not automatic. And as I pointed out in our introduction to Revelation, how can we respond properly enough to what John has told us if we either do not understand these words at all or we don't understand them as God through John meant for us to understand them. You know, it shouldn't be lost on us that the blessing spoken of here is the first of seven blessings in Revelation aimed at the reader or hearer at all times assumed to be a believer. The other blessings are found in chapters 14, 16, 19, 20 and two of them in chapter 22. It should also not be lost that the word hearers, hearers of this prophecy of Revelation, is directly connected to obedience to those words. Where have we encountered this hear, obey dynamic before? No doubt in John's Jewish mind, this hear-obey connection is expressed in the Hebrew word Shema, which means exactly hear and obey. Therefore, to passively read or passively listen, even to comprehend the words of the book of Revelation, but without obeying them is useless, at least when it comes to hoping to receive that promised blessing. I'm sorry to say that while many Christians would probably deny it, the concept of obedience to God's word is all but extinguished within the church. The thought is generally that obedience is obviously connected to a rule. And a rule is connected to a deed or a work, a doer or a don't. And works are bad. And they fly in the face of grace. Further, while the Old Testament's all about rules, 
the New Testament's all about free grace. Therefore, obedience has little to no place in the life of a New Testament Christian. In fact, it's a negative. So fellow believers, I say this to you. If you believe that obedience is a thing of the past and not a requirement for you, then whatever blessing is available to you from reading or hearing Revelation is not going to be yours. To show obedience to God is how we show love to God. There is no other way. Obedience is God's love language. It's not our intent. It's not our emotions. It's not our knowledge gained from study. This is why in Jewish thought, the Hebrew word Shema is one of the most important. It represents a concept larger than the word itself. Well, the final words of verse 3 are, For the time is near. As with Paul, John believed he was living in the end times. The time being near did not mean within decades let alone within hundreds or thousands of years, it was at any moment in actual reality. It was not an indefinite expression of time that we tend to use it today. So when we understand this, we also then understand the extreme urgency in John's mind, as it was with Paul's. I mean, wouldn't you feel a heightened sense of urgency if you suddenly began receiving divine visions and oracles concerning God's judgment of the world? Well, verse 4 begins a section of Revelation that on the surface is not prophecy per se, but rather is instructions for the believers that are located at seven different congregations in Asia. Now, seven is the biblical number of completion and perfection, and Revelation is full of sevens. While the number is used in so many instances in the Bible, although mostly in the Tanakh, the number seven also carries with it the sense of finality. Thus, the unusually prolific use of sevens in Revelation is more than a coincidence as the book of Revelation speaks of the finality of God's coming judgment upon all the earth's inhabitants. It also speaks of the end of sacred time and space as we know it. Of history as we know it. And even of the substance of humans and of other creatures as we know it. And as Christ tells us in Matthew 5, 17 through 19, along with the many uses of sevens in Revelation and what's unveiled for us, unveiled for us, these will signal the end of the Torah and of all prophetic utterances because by then all will have been achieved. Their purposes will have been fulfilled, but not until the final moments depicted in John's vision. Thus it is appropriate that John is writing to seven believing congregations in Asia to relay to them their spiritual condition from our Lord's viewpoint, since they are in the end times. And depending on your Bible version, Instead of the recipients being seven messianic communities, like we find in the complete Jewish Bible, you're going to find the words seven churches in Asia. Now the English word church is not there. It was added to give us a decidedly skewed mental picture. Rather, the word in Greek is ecclesia. And the full definition is the gathering of citizens called out from their homes to some public space, an assembly. The word has no religious connotation of its own. 
However, when used in a religious context, it is appropriate to translate ecclesia to congregation, but certainly not to church. Editing in the word church anywhere in the New Testament is an anachronism, and it muddies the waters. There were many more than seven believing congregations in Asia. But so far as we know, they all met either in someone's home or more often in a synagogue. So there is a great debate among biblical scholars about the nature of these seven letters. And before we read them, let's address what that great debate's about. Some say that the letters to the seven congregations are merely symbolic of what goes on in all congregations and so aren't actual letters but they are rather just general examples. Others say that the seven letters represent seven stages of church development over the centuries. Okay, that is, the first letter to Ephesus represents the characteristics of the first stage of church development, the letter to Smyrna, uh, the characteristics of the second stage of church development, and the letter to Laodicea, the final stage of church development. Thus, the idea behind all of these ways to interpret John's meaning is none of these actual, uh, none of these represent actual letters that confront actual problems or conditions of these seven named churches. I completely disagree with that. If it was so, I would have expected John to use wording that clearly marked these congregations' letters as symbolic. No such symbolic language is present. Rather, the various interpretations are quite specific and unambiguous. It's my contention that these seven letters are meant to address the actual conditions present within the seven, seven actual congregations John is writing them to. To John's mind, hear me here, to John's mind, the only thing that made these seven letters different from any regular letters he might have sent to them is they are directed by God. So they carry the greatest divine authority. Even so, I also believe that these letters are valuable for believing congregations of all ages to use, for learning, for instruction, for admonishment, even if, it isn't that, if that's not necessarily what, God, what John had in mind. Thus these letters fall within the scope of us needing to be obedient to what they say, at least partly so we can receive that blessing that John spoke about back in verse 3. Now, while the seven letters to the seven specific congregations are real and actual letters, addressing real and actual issues within each of those congregations, it is fair to say that their messages can be applied to a broader scope of congregations at all times in history, since, John, since John's day to our time and beyond us. However, any attempt to make, make it that these seven letters sum up all the possible conditions that could happen within all believing congregations during any age or that they are the seven characteristics or they're the seven stages of church development is just much too limiting if not downright fanciful. Church development in seven stages is a pure man-made doctrine. It's nowhere found in the Holy Scriptures. Besides, there's far more conditions than we could all think of that have found their way into the body of believers and there are many more characteristics of churches over the centuries than the very few that are mentioned in these seven letters. Well the next several words of verse 4 continue adding to the degree of theological difficulty. John's greeting of grace and peace 
to the seven congregations is without doubt merely expressing John's uh, Jewish Hebrew thought of shalom, a standard greeting from a Jew. And like the word Shema, Shalom is more than a mere word. It represents a concept of God-given well-being. It includes grace, health, peace, loving-kindness, and, and much more. But next we see John offer greetings on behalf of three different entities. First, we're told, from the one who is, who was, and who is coming. Second, from the sevenfold spirit before his throne. Third, from Yeshua the Messiah. So once again, we find John drawing rather firm lines between the personages that Christianity labels the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, to add to the difficulty... <laughs> Hang on to your hats. We hear of what is apparently the Father, described as the one who was and who is and is coming. Uh, in checking the Greek syntax, is coming is correct. And yet, in Christian thought and doctrine, it is Christ not the Father, who is coming, as in coming back. So unless there's an error in the Greek manuscripts of the book of Revelation, this throws us a bit of a curveball. Well, let me throw you a little bigger one that actually backs up John's description of presumably the Father as one who is coming. Listen to this. Don't turn your Bibles there, just listen to this. Zechariah 14, starting in verse 1. Look, a day is coming for Adonai when your plunder, Jerusalem, will be divided right there with you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem for war. The city will be taken, the houses will be rifled, the women will be raped, and half the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then Adonai will go out and fight against those nations. Fighting is on a day of battle, and on that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which lies to the east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will be split in half from the east to the west to make a huge valley. And half of the mountain will move towards the north, half of it towards the south. And you will flee to the valley in the mountain. For the valley in the mountain will reach to Atzel, and you will flee, just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And then Adonai, my God, will come to you with all the holy ones. And on that day there will be neither bright light nor thick darkness. And one day, known to Adonai, will be neither day nor night, although by evening there will be light. And on that day, fresh water will flow out of Jerusalem, half of it towards the eastern sea, half of it towards the western sea, both in summer and winter. Then Adonai will be king over the whole world. And on that day, Adonai will be the only one, and his name will be the only name. Now this passage is familiar especially to evangelical Christians, as it is said to depict Christ returning and descending upon the Mount of Olives. Everywhere we see the word Adonai in the complete Jewish Bible, you're going to find the word Lord in other English Bible versions of these verses. Of course, especially within Christianity, anywhere we find the word Lord, it is usually assumed this is referring to Jesus. But when we look at this passage in its original Hebrew, we find something a little startling. It seems that both the complete Jewish Bible using Adonai and the other standard English Bible versions using Lord mislead us. Everywhere we find the word Adonai or Lord in these verses, 
in actuality, the original Hebrew says, yud Hey vav Hey, Yehovah. God's formal name has given to Moses on Mount Sinai. Or better, Yehovah, God the Father. Thus we have, according to Zechariah, Yehovah who is coming, setting his foot on the Mount of Olives whereupon it splits. It is Yehovah who is going to go out to Armageddon and fight the nations. It is Yehovah who will be king over the whole world. However, in Christian theology, all of these attributes and activities are assigned to Yeshua, God's Son. Quite the mystery. Now we're not going to solve this mystery today. But remember, John was not a Western Gentile Christian. He was a Torah-believing, Torah-following Jew who saw Yeshua of Nazareth as the prophesied Messiah of God. He did not know about Christian doctrines because none existed. He did not have a New Testament because none existed. So in some undefined way, according to what John wrote in Revelation, while Christ was indeed returning, in some other way, so the Father was also coming in the end times. And we just found proof of that in Zechariah 14. Don't ask me to explain it. I would have to speculate, and I just don't have enough information to present any intellectually honest theory that couldn't be knocked down by any other number of theories. But in this short detour is a powerful lesson for us. Man-made doctrines can at times be misleading. And they can also suppress certain plain scriptural truths by slightly modifying scriptural words so that they don't throw any cold water on those doctrines. It would sure be a lot easier for us if Zechariah had said Messiah or Son of God instead of Jehovah lighting on upon the Mount of Olives. But he didn't. He said, Jehovah, the Father. This is another, another of the many mysteries that we probably aren't going to unveil until the event actually happens. Nonetheless, we learn that in the end times, the Father is coming as well as Yeshua. And it is something both John and Zechariah verify. In what manner or form is Jehovah the Father coming? I don't know. But I do know that we need to be aware of Zechariah's prophecy of truth and expect it to happen. Just as he says it will, even if we can't fully comprehend it or explain it just yet. Now, as for the remark about the sevenfold spirit, the truth is that in Greek this could be legitimately translated as the seven spirits. Now, thus, because of this, some think this could be referring to seven high ranking angels who serve before God's heavenly throne. Interestingly, Judaism believes that there are seven archangels. And the term seven spirits is indeed present in a few other places in the Bible, including Psalm 104 and Hebrews chapter 1. However, in the context of the absolute divine beings along which this spirit comet is placed, it's hard to imagine including angels of any rank since they are by no means divine. Angels are not divine. They're created spirit beings. 
in light of a constant barrage of sevens that symbolizes the symbolizes this divine perfection and completion and finality of the book of Revelation, then the characterization of the sevenfold spirit fits very well. The perfect fullness of the work of the Holy Spirit, especially if we're at the end of days. Therefore, I'm convinced that this is indeed speaking of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. It's another term for it. Now Yeshua, moving on to that third person, Yeshua, Yeshua is described as the faithful witness and the firstborn from the dead. What did Yeshua witness to? What does this mean? He witnessed to God's saving grace offered to humanity as the most costly ransom ever ever paid. The price of God's Son. Christ's faithfulness to his witness extended all the way to his own death. Now, firstborn from the dead does not mean that Christ was the first to be resurrected from the dead. We have earlier examples in both the prophets and even in the New Testament of God resurrecting people from the dead. Rather, it is probably better to focus on the office of the firstborn from a biblical and Hebrew perspective. That is, the firstborn, always a male, is given special authority within a family. Firstborn is a status. So it was not uncommon that the son given the firstborn status was not the first son to have been born in the family. Thus Christ was not the first to rise from the dead, but he was chosen to have special authority. He was given the status of the firstborn by God over those of us who trust in him and will also be resurrected from the dead as was he. Now next at the end of verse 5, there is a, a, a turn from John telling his readers that God in his manifest forms brings greetings to the believers of the seven congregations. Now John pays a special homage to Christ as the one in the Godhead who has freed us from our sins and caused us to be a kingdom of priests for God. God here meaning the Father. Okay, Forever. So once again, the Father is given preeminence just as Yeshua regularly insisted upon during his ministry on earth. Let's talk for a minute about this remark of believers becoming priests or in Hebrew kohanim for the Father. It's another theological pothole I'm afraid. The concept of believers as priests I think has been misconstrued And it's at the root of some of the more blatant replacement theology doctrines that that we find among some Christian denominations. That is, a widespread Christian doctrine is that the priesthood of Gentile believers in Christ will replace the Levitical priesthood during the Millennial Kingdom period because Israel has lost its place before God. Well, let me throw a little cold water on that. First of all, even if it was true, which it's not, that the church has replaced Israel with the Gentile church, Levites are exempt because they have not been part of Israel since the Exodus. God removed them from among the tribes of Israel and set them apart as non-partisan priests. We find this in Numbers chapter 1. All through Israel's history, beginning with the Exodus and right on till today, the Levites are a unique case and are not to be counted as among the tribes of Israel. But then there's also the issue of the book of Ezekiel. 
that spends several chapters having Ezekiel measure and diagram the temple that will be built by God to reign in during the millennial period. And in addition, in Ezekiel chapter 44, he carefully explains all the duties of the Levite priesthood that is to be reconstituted based solely on the descendants of Sadok, a rightful heir in the line of Aaron. Listen to how the Lord describes who is going to be the priests in the millennial temple from Ezekiel 44 starting at verse 10. Rather the Levites who went far away from me when Israel went astray Going astray after their idols, they will bear the consequences of their guilt, but they are to serve in my sanctuary. They will have charge of the gates of the house and of serving in the house. They will slaughter the burnt offering and the sacrifice for the people. They will attend and serve them. Because they served them in the presence of their idols and became an occasion of sin for the house of Israel, I'm raising my hand against them, says Adonai Elohim. They will bear the consequences of their guilt. They will not approach me to serve me in the office of Kohen or approach any of the holy things or the especially holy things, but they will bear the shame for all the disgusting practices they committed. Yet, I will put them in charge of the house and it, all of its maintenance, everything that is to be done in it. However, the priests who are Levites and descendants of Zadok, those who took care of my sanctuary when the people of Israel went astray from me, they are the ones who will approach me and serve me. It is they who will attend me and offer me the fat and the blood, says Adonai Elohim. They will enter my sanctuary and approach my table to minister to me and perform my service. Pretty definitive. A priest, you see, is a person set apart to serve God. And folks, that is how all believers are to look at ourselves. Because that's how God sees us. It's what He fully expects from us. However, that is entirely different than being a member of the official priesthood that was created to serve God by, by performing some very specific duties at His sanctuary, at the temple. The book of Ezekiel makes it crystal clear it shall not be Gentile believers, the church, that will form a new priesthood that replaces the Levites. It will be actual Levites, those who descend from Sadok, who will serve God at the temple during the thousand year reign of Christ. We'll continue with Revelation chapter 1 next time.